the coffee house sessions. That's, that's an unusual name for this because when I think of a coffee house, I think about a place where a bunch of hippies gather together to drink coffee and to talk. Um, why, why are you calling this the coffee house sessions? Well, Jim, I'm surprised. I'm honestly surprised. I would have thought a man of your historical knowledge would know where the coffee houses lie in 17th century confessional Baptist historical context. Were there hippies in the 17th century, Dan? No, there were no hippies. No, but okay. Although they did wear long hair, many of them. Yeah. That's... yeah. No, yeah, all right. You've, you've made a point. Uh, they typically met together. Pastors would meet together on a regular basis. Uh, James Jones Coffee House in London was one of the favorites for the uh, local ministers down there, the particular Baptist ministers. Okay, I, I give in. They, they would meet in the coffee house? Yeah, they would meet in the coffee house, wow. yeah. Has anyone got the name James Jones on a brand of roasted coffee? I do not know that. Okay, nobody do that? Broken Wharf has that. <laughs> Copyright. Broken Wharf James Jones coffee coming soon. That's already copyrighted. Copyright. I'm writing now a C <laughs> yeah. in a circle and, and with that next to it. So don't even try. It's ours. So you're just declaring it, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's how or, things or work these to days. Use, to use the, uh, the modern terminology, you've just manifested. Have I? Yeah. I've just manifested James <laughs> Jones coffee. All right. Well, anyway, you heard it here first. So... This is submissible in court if anywhere, if we need to. De- deeply roasted, extra confessional, thoroughly Baptist. Oh, it, look, oh. he's got all the copy already. Oh, man. Darren, let, let's talk afterwards. But what if you don't drink coffee, which I don't? Does that put me outside? Do I have to leave the room? Is it is it the caffeine? We can do decaf. No, it's it's the hot beverage. I don't like hot beverages. Uh, I do, I, I do like, yeah, I like ice, iced coffee. We'll be all right, yeah. Mm. As long as it's dark. You know, yeah. Okay, yeah. I can James live with that. James Jones, Ex- extra dark, definitely. Extra dark, dark iced coffee. Ice coffee. Yeah, mm. I can yeah, see it yeah. now. Now, the in the 17th energy. century, they didn't have ice, though, right? So that's not authentic. I have to quit. <laughs> Listen, Jim, we can do whatever we need to do to keep you from falling over. <laughs> that's that's an allusion to uh, the fact that I, I have uh, stumbled a few times lately, and I'm seeing doctors for help with balance <laughs> and right. darren saw it as an opportunity for a cheap shot he yeah, did, yeah, he did. Yeah, but yeah. Let, let, let's at, at our special guest <laughs> from wow. from cheap shots to shoehorned in topics um talking of balance uh i wondered if we could have a little bit of a chat <laughs> where, about where we balanced theological education um what it was so one of the things we like to talk about a broken wharf quite a lot you might have noticed if you've been listening into the um our shorter form podcasts and um, some of our blogs is thinking about well we're thinking about confessional theology we've talked about a little bit about why we have the topics we do in the confession why theology is ordered in the way it is um and um and i i wondered if we could kick around a little bit today and get jim's thoughts as um president of irbs um seminary uh on well theological education and specifically or in the ballpark of if theology is confessional if 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 the confession does a good job at both as a kind of a way of um summarizing the contents of the bible uh you know we've talked to the pastor how it's um it's systematic 
it contains covenant theology. It's got pastoral theology in there. It, it's, it cycles through all the, the disciplines, as it were, um, because it's capturing the teachings of the Bible. What does a confessional approach to theology do to theological training? Uh, do, do you see what I mean? I, I, just as a, a little bit of context here, um, I've been involved with theological education since we planted a church in, in various forms. And wanting to do comprehensive theological education is something that everybody wants to do, for, mm-hmm. particularly for people who perhaps they, they haven't got time to go to seminary or if they do, you know, the, to, to connect theology and training to the local church um, and, and those, those, sorts of, those sorts of things. The word comprehensive can mean different things to different people, can't it? Uh, for instance, you could have some views of comprehensive theological education might be um, all that you need to know to plant a church, all that you need to know to pastor a church. And that might be lots of biblical counseling, lots of practice, practical stuff on on how the church should run. But, but perhaps not so much systematics. So some some approaches you know, go go that line. Um, how does a how does a uh, a confessional approach to theological education fill out that word comprehensive, as it were? Yeah. Um, let me just start by asking you this question. I know that in Britain you have comprehensive schools. Yeah. What what does that mean in relation to this discussion, or does it not? Well, that's a good question. I I, I well. Isn't isn't comprehensive another and the old label for grammar, grammar schools? I think didn't comp. Now this is this shows our age. I think comprehensive <laughs> schools replaced as grammar schools started to 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 sort of be phased out, as it were. A comprehensive education was all about somebody's idea of what every citizen needed to know mm. um, about. A large number of topics mm, okay. at, at various various yeah, levels. Okay. So it was yeah. the idea of the the rounded education. Okay. But I think actually, but it but but by breadth, I'm not sure necessarily by depth. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, grammar school where I come from means something different to what it means here. Right. Grammar school means the first six years. Well, kindergarten and the first six years okay. of ah. school is a grammar school. Then you go into middle school or high school. So we we use it in a different sense. I would say, to go back to your question, Johnny, the place to begin is by thinking through how we define training in a local church, Hmm. okay? Because I want to suggest that a lot of ministers have bought into uh, a view of training their people that doesn't really fit what the the Bible and church history speak about. And that is that I, I want to say that the, the means of grace that God has given to us, preaching and teaching in the local church, mm. baptism, Lord's Supper, prayer, is sufficient for what God's people need. Uh, you know, we've, we've uh, you mentioned that, that I serve at IRBS. We try to remind ourselves that we're, we're not an institution that is intended to be available to everybody mm. so that everybody theologically or can can come along theologically mm-hmm. but rather our focus has to be on those who will be the leaders in the church to help them because they're the ones who have to take what we teach and distill it in such a way that the you know the the young woman who has three children who are all under the age of 8 and are crying for her attention that she's able to understand things. She doesn't have the time or the energy under most circumstances uh, 
to take extra courses, mm. but she has the the Lord's Day and the church that Christ has appointed, and that should be sufficient for her growth. So, but I think a lot of a lot of us have bought into the idea that we we have to give people more than the church can give them, and if we don't give them more than the church can give them, somehow we're uh, we're not giving them the the diet that they really need. I want to challenge that, you know, and say that our roles as ministers in the churches are what Christ appointed for the people of the churches, which then means that ministerial training is, in fact, ministerial training. It's giving to men uh, both the the knowledge and the tools that they need to be able to meet the needs of God's people as they gather together week by week so that they can help that woman with three Mm -hmm. children under the age of eight to serve and honor Christ in the role that she has in her life at that point. The same with the teenager who's struggling with, uh, you know, all of the developments that come with, with being a teenager or, or the old man who's retired because his body can't, and his mind can't keep up with what he did before. He, he needs that nurturing every week that comes from the means of grace. And so I think that the goal of ministerial training needs to be to, um, prepare men for those various circumstances so they become the instruments of bringing God's truth to God's people. Can I just ask, do you think it's a fair point to to make that some of this this point that you made about them <clears throat> trying to add to or provide something outside of the local church, do you think some of that is due to the lack of of substance that people are actually getting in their local churches? They're not actually getting the, the type of ministry they should be getting, and therefore they're looking elsewhere. Yeah, that's a good comment, and it should boomerang back on on the ministers who are following that path, isn't it? They should be looking in the mirror and saying, I'm not giving them what they need to live the Christian life, uh, and so I have to you know, set up some other means by which they can get what I'm not giving them. Of course, I don't know that anybody thinks in those terms, but Darren, I think you're exactly right that that's the case. And and I think it's it's interesting viewing it from a what could be described maybe as a a congregant upwards perspective. If, mm-hmm. if we have at the, the top here, the theological training of the ministers, uh, what the, the congregation needs should in, in many ways, because they are shepherds of mm-hmm. the congregation. Mm-hmm. And right. if they're in training, they're being trained to shepherd those people. That's right. yeah. uh, then we should consider it almost that way, congregant to uh, the training. Uh, I, I wonder if the, the discussion, uh, Johnny, uh, began here regarding that what what is comprehensive training? Uh, I wonder if there's a, a sense in which people see, well, in the lives of the congregant, there is not a need for. Now, I'm I'm not saying I opt for this, but I think it's a, a common argument that people make against what we would regard as comprehensive theological training. They would say the congregant doesn't need to know the ins and outs of associational church life or doesn't need to know much about ecclesiology, which is the the doctrine of the church. And so I think it's very popular to just leave these gigantic gaps in what is the the encyclopedia of theology, all the different subjects, leave big gaps where we don't really need to train men in, for example, ecclesiology. They can work Mm -hmm. that out in their own Mm -hmm. context, or we don't need to go down this route or that route. Let's just focus Mm -hmm. on these major few things. How would, how would you, formulate a, a response to that kind of argument. Yeah, that, that's that's a good observation, and it is a problem 
in you know in putting together we're using the word comprehensive and putting together a comprehensive curriculum uh, to say no we don't need that or we don't need that but but how the church functions has a direct effect on the lives of every single person in the church mm-hmm. and you the minister needs to be prepared to be able to teach that to the people but also to show them by the way the church is governed how the church is to be governed so the when the the, the church has meetings where they come together as they act in those meetings, whether it's to receive reports or to hear about a church discipline situation or to participate in an annual accounting of what's happened in the past year, you're showing the people by the way that you conduct those meetings, how you understand the word of God to be uh, teaching us how a congregation is to function. So I I don't know that uh, the people in the church need to have that course in ecclesiology but you need to have that course, and you need to be able to put it into practice so that the people can benefit from it along the way. And I, I think it's interesting then bringing that full circle back to the the idea of how comprehensive it should be. If, if that's true, that there are things that the minister ought to do in the background and understand and, and put in place for the good of the people, even though they may not have a, a comprehension uh, of those things. Uh, surely it it is really crucial to have a, a type of training where in many ways all these bases are covered and it, it's interesting i i know johnny's mm. mentioned this in the past in in previous broken wharf podcast uh, episodes that in many ways the confession provides for us this uh, encyclopedia of theology now it doesn't go into all the details in lots because it, it it's not that type of document but it's interesting how if you're thinking of training people well you really do have uh, in many ways an encyclopedia or all those subjects there laid out in your confession of faith yeah i suppose i suppose it's a little bit like a you know a doctor when you go and see a doctor you don't expect them to explain everything they learned in medical school to you in order to give you an answer to the issue mm. that you've presented with um, but you also want a doctor who has gone through all that um johnny You've asked this question, and you've mm. been involved in in um, in the past, in your past multiple lives that you existed in. Um, you, you, <laughs> alternative, you, you, alternate you, identities. <laughs> you, you've been involved in ed- education, particularly theological education. How how would you see this kind of approach as different from what you've known in the past? Oh, um. Well, let me see if I can come round to that and answer to that question um, by this route. Um, What I find really fascinating by Jim's answer is it begins with how the means of grace, therefore how Christ ministers in the church. And so doesn't start in a place of uh, need identifying a need you know um and and i think so i this isn't a comment on other institutions i've been involved with uh, this is this is what what i thought i was contributing whenever i've been involved with training before coming to a confessional perspective i think um my my approach would have been something like um find 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 the need and service the need 
and the need n- not defined by just a sort of a felt need, but I would have come up with a a a, a theological rationale for the need, and then train to that. So the need would be to plant more churches. The need would therefore you go okay. So then I need people who know how to engage with the culture. I need people. You then need to be able to bring on a team who are going to join the church plant. So what do they need to know? And it would be some kind of know the gospel well enough because we all agree on the gospel, and 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 then you you build out from there and what happens then is if you're quite needs orientated uh, in that sense you 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 you've already assessed what you think the need is so you whenever you know the whole thing that when it whenever you set up a problem you've already sort of set up the solution by the way you frame the problem oh, yeah, yeah. and what you end up doing is if you badly frame a problem you already close the doors on a whole bunch of not only solutions, but other ways of conceiving the problem mm-hmm. before you've even got going. Mm-hmm. So if the problem is there's not enough churches that are teaching the gospel and that's who wouldn't agree with that, mm-hmm. but I've not yet just, I've not unpacked that and gone, okay, what is the gospel? How much is the gospel? How much of the gospel does one need to know? Um, not just to be saved, but we're looking through um, one Timothy um, at the moment, and it strikes me Paul is 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 telling Timothy that he's got to defend the gospel. Right? He says, "I'm I command, I give you the instruction while you're in Ephesus, you've got to deal with these false teachers, and they're teaching falsely on how the Old and New Testaments relate, on how the law relates to the gospel." Well, covenant theology. It's where you need to go for that. As Paul then contemplates and uses himself as an example of somebody convicted under the law and brought to brought to the gospel and, and is a living example of a person of the fact that Jesus, that Christ Jesus died, uh, came into the world to save sinners. He contemplates the majesty of God. And so you have big God theology and you have covenantal structure and you have right in the middle the the the, the t-shirt slogan or rather the the reliable statement that has always delivers and and continues to deliver today that if you do ask christians what the word on the street was at the time that it said christ jesus came into the world to save sinners there's the essence of the gospel and it sits in there in the covenantal structure of of old and new covenants and brings us to know the one true god that's a huge amount of theology but um and and supporting that it's not just that you need to know these things so that you can be communicated to you know a church or even that a church needs to know these things you need to have the supporting pillars so you ask well who was this christ jesus well yeah and you've got an just an immense amount of theology to work through there on the divinity the humanity how he relates to us all all those things so i suppose my approach would have been in answer to your question to start with need but not in a kind of um and i think lots of folks do this not in a not wanting to be a pragmatist because I can remember thinking pra- pragmatists, you know, that's the 
that one of the major philosophies that the Americans gave us. Mm. And uh, and we actually want to be principled. So what are the principles? Wait a minute. Don't blame us for everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, but I think what I what I've what I've come to or what I'm coming to understand is before I get to assess the need, I need to do some listening to the past and what others have said about what, when you press on, when you click on Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and it unfolds into all the associated files that come spilling out of that. There's a lot more to need to know and know in a way that was confessed by like churches that the confession was not a document for the academy but for the church so what was the standard kind of what just what's in the bag of stuff and when you come back to the bigger bag of stuff you can assess need better as it as it were um and then come to different conclusions on how you service that need yeah now you just put a thought into my mind if you don't mind me following up with you here no okay no, you know being something of a historian i want to look back into how do we get to this point? Mm. And uh, a couple of thoughts run through in my mind. Are you familiar with the Bevington quadrilateral or the what's called the evangelical quadrilateral? Oh, yes. I Bevington, so. in I think it was 1989, published a book on English history, British church history. Pardon, yeah, pardon? Evangelical, British evangelical. Yeah, since yeah. Eight, 1730, I think it was. And he argued, and I know that, that there are those who disagree with, you know, and I'm not promoting – the Bevington Quadrilateral, although I think he makes some really good points. He, he he suggests that there's a difference between what happened before the Enlightenment and what happened in the Enlightenment through the revivals and afterwards. And he argues that evangelicalism that develops out of the 1730s is different to the Puritan era evangelicalism. Mm. And one of his four points in the Quadrilateral is activism, that mm. you, you begin to see a level of activism in evangelicalism that perhaps wasn't present before, meaning now now Carl Truman has written a, an, an article on the the role of the laity uh, in the Puritan era, and I think Truman makes very good points that there's 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 evidence that there is a, a lay participation in the work of the church, but Bebbington wants to say it becomes expanded after 1730 and increases. And, and that leads to the, the 18th, well, that's the 18th, the 19th century and the early 20th century, where now activism really identifies what evangelicalism is about. Mm. And it's the need to get the gospel out to the world. So no longer do you have seminaries or, or an emphasis on seminaries. Now you have Bible colleges. You know, the seminary model is you go for four years for an undergraduate degree, and that gives you a basis upon which you can build mm. for the future. But uh, the, the, the idea that was present in many people's mind is the need is so great, let's ex uh, accelerate the process so that we can get more people out there on the field now and reach the world for Christ now, which means that there was a dumbing down of uh, theological education because the undergraduate level and the graduate level are not the same. Mm -hmm. the, the level of reading, uh, engagement with material – ought to be much, much higher on a graduate level than it is on the undergraduate level. So you had that that mentality, and it's, I, maybe it was true here, but especially I saw this in the United States. Um, you, you wanted to go to Bible college because you wanted to get out there when you were 22 years old and you'd conquer the world for Christ as a result of that. Well, what's the, the, the fruit of that? The fruit of that is men who are not well-trained 
And so they have to find a way to overcome their lack of training by bringing it to God's people. And so you introduce that extra level of uh, training on into your church, something besides what the church is. You lose the emphasis on what Christ has already given, and so you have to add something because those men felt th- their own need. Now, here's, here's a true story mm. that's sort of the opposite of that. Uh, I'm going to tell you a story. I'm not going to name the man. Very well-known man. You probably have some of his books on these shelves right here. Graduate of one of the three major universities here in the UK. Man whose ministry has been long and useful, and we greatly appreciate it. And he told me this personally, okay? In the 1950s, he sent uh, an application in to one of the, well, to Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. He wanted to come over and study. He had done in his undergraduate degree was on ancient philosophy. Remember, one of the major universities in the UK. He got back a letter from Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia saying, Dear Mr. So-and-so, um, you have an excellent training in ancient philosophy, but really you're under, under-trained under in modern philosophy, so we can't allow you to be admitted to our program because you really would need to beef up your understanding of you know, what has happened in the last hundred years. I can Still guarantee right. you that that won't happen today. Yeah, it will not would not happen today, because seminaries these days, in a sense, all you have to do is have that bachelor of something. Yeah. in the past, if if that. Well, yeah, but I'm, I'm just thinking in the UK, uh, it would be widely. Well, it, not it would just be standard to. But, but that's the Bible College approach. See, yeah. if you don't have it, you get that from the Bible College. Mm. Um, you, you just you just threw off my whole. <laughs> I can't even see the caboose to my train. It's so far I, gone. On I the, feel guilty now. Yeah, you were yeah, talking yeah. about the the fact that he didn't have modern philosophy. Yeah, he, so the right. Seminary. So he was turned down. Yeah. And, and, and seminaries don't do that anymore. So you you even in seminary training, you have men coming in who don't have the the foundations upon which to build. You know, when we put together our curriculum at IRBS, I I I, I asked all of the core professors. What do you think needs to be done? And they gave me so many courses that we would have had a five or six year program to get done everything that they they felt like they needed to do. Mm. One of the things we kicked around a little bit was um, actually offering a first year, um, sort of an introductory year to deal with some of the subjects that students don't get. Look, if if you have an engineering degree, Mm. which that's a good thing, right? But if you have an engineering degree and then decide that you want to go to seminary, you haven't had the traditional liberal arts training that prepares you to be able to read books and think through books. And you're probably a very bright person, but your preparation is lacking. So we kicked around the idea of actually having a fourth year that for any of those those type of men with a Bachelor of Music or a Bachelor of Engineering or Computer Science – to, to give them some of those things that traditionally have been in a liberal arts undergraduate degree. Of course, we couldn't do it uh, because it, we, we don't have the, the ability to, to do things like that. But I would have liked to mm. in order to meet that need, see, because it, it's, a, it's a real need. So once again, we're back at the same thing. Guys, even at well-trained in seminary, maybe don't have all of the equipment that they need to have. Now, you guys know we've worked really hard at IRBS to provide some of those things. So we have the the foundations of theology class, Mm. which I would like to have even more expanded. But somebody told me, a well-known 
writer. We mentioned his name at the luncheon table a little while ago. Uh, he said IRBS is the only school that he knows of in all the world that has an introductory class like that to prepare students for what's ahead. We've really tried to go back to that model by providing men with things that they, they haven't had in the past because we because of what you asked mm. and, and that need today. And, and I think when you begin trying to really have re- responsive training, you definitely lower the the bar in your mind, even, even if you're not doing it objectively, you're doing it practically, which affects your view uh, of the ministry. You're lowering the, lowering the bar of what, uh, you know, uh, the, the minister is in a way, you know, mm-hmm. what the minister is mm-hmm. called to do. Yeah. I, I wouldn't, I don't advocate this. Okay. And you guys can follow up with me if you want to. I think you know where, why I wouldn't advocate <laughs> it. But Richard Baxter said that in every sermon, the minister should say something that he knows no one in the congregation will understand. I have no problem doing that, by the way. <laughs> Just in general. <laughs> I, that's that's kind of startling, isn't it? Yeah. And, yeah, and yeah, I'm yeah. not endorsing that, but that was the level in the in the middle of the 17th century. Right. You you need to be and make it clear to your people every week that you know more than they do. Well, no, we don't want to tell people that we know more than they do. We want to bring them up to the level that they need to be at. And that's through preaching and teaching and and uh giving you know not giving them the uh, 15 minute sermonette uh, also not giving them the 1 hour sermon either uh you know there's only so much that people can handle yeah yeah, yeah. i think the, the the activism point is uh I, um when you said going right back to the beginning of your answer to start with um the means of grace i i i, st- I felt a ah <laughs> because refreshed refre- yeah you, you had an iced coffee yeah. it, but just just a theological iced coffee mm. um, what, be, well said. Be, because yeah. because of the the activism thing so in our, you know uh, I, i've been an activist and um and and i see the activism thing and the activism thing does a couple of things one is it, it comes from a good place all christians of every generation as far as i can work out have a how can we make christianity um more than just a sunday experience right you want to and so everyone wants to get and 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 new options come along for um ways of becoming more than a sunday christian Mm -hmm. and they're often sort of creamed off the top of a flat reading of the new testament you let me say so what in the sense you kind of there's got you you go well, Jesus had fishermen. They were untrained, and look, and then he sends them out, and they're all going on. And you and you can take a model. So maybe it's just everyone becomes an evangelist. Um, maybe it's yeah, Paul travelled around with a gang of people. They spent three years with Jesus, right? Well, <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah. but you know, if you take that surface yeah, reading, you yeah. can just cream off some bits and yeah. come off with a model. Yeah. Maybe we need groups of three, and then groups of twelve. Um, in your church, organize, you know, to, to really go deeper. Yeah. Or maybe Paul travelled around with a band of people. Maybe we all need to be travelling communities of missionaries together, bands of missionaries. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's the way. Mm-hmm. Um, or, and then there's there's been the biblical counselling movement. You know, there's lots to be said that's good for, for, for recalibrating, thinking about talking therapies or answering those with a biblical perspective. But, you know, I know in the UK, the biblical counselling movement... 
uh, has taken off in a particular way that for some in local churches, if their pastor's not doing biblical counselling or the ministry isn't fundamentally biblical counselling, mm-hmm. th- so it's th- then there's a there's a problem that needs to be what's going on in the one to ones that are happening. Yeah. So yeah. so there's always these new ways of doing. They're quite activist based to try and energize congregations beyond right into into a, a, a inner circle level of christian it's never put in those terms in a circle level of christian activity yeah yeah in some kind of way those who are truly spiritual we will, will be involved in whatever the church emphasizes yes yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 and so if you want to if you if you know that you've you've not got enough churches we need more churches you can end up dev- designing training that briefs so you've got people who don't have a lot of time on their hands who you want to put in church leadership so you give them uh, enough to get on with the particular emphasis that mm-hmm. you feel mm-hmm. that they're going to need yep. and you hope that thing multiplies and those things are largely or oftentimes uh, culturally motivated aren't they yeah whatever is the latest thing that that you work I, I I've noticed I've been around long enough that there's about a five year cycle right and something will come up and everybody will jump on board. But five years later, there'll be something else that everybody jumps on board, and then another four or five years later, and and so you're you're cycling through all kinds of different mm-hmm. activities and programs that that don't last. When if we just focused on what Christ has appointed to us to focus on, mm-hmm. um, that has a promise. See, that's the thing about the means of grace is that there's a promise attached, a promise of divine blessing, and so we do those things that God says He will bless not try to invent something that uh, we'll work and prepare our people for this, knowing that in a couple of years, something else is going to come along that's going to attract my attention. I'm going to go for that and have to retrain them to the new thing. Um, can, I, can I switch up the conversation a little bit? Um, I, I've been quite interested because I was, I, d- I did a PhD at a secular university, lectured there for a bit. And, and also, and the, the particular topic had me thinking about, and it's always been an interest in mind, how people approach what knowledge is, right? So mm. his, his, in a university setting, in a modern secular university, um, our approach to knowledge is very much, uh, it comes before us as the arbiter of all truth. And if you can have people leaving with more questions than answers, um, and, and, teach a sort of um a lack of certainty you know mm. about things yeah. uh, then you've done you you you've you've tr- you've done a good job on having people approach knowledge mm. apply to a theo- when a theological degree then if that becomes your mode of theological education then you would uh you you would be teaching a a kind of skepticism of theological as approach theology now with that mm-hmm. you've got to apply skeptical tools um you've got to unpick certain things to and ask socio-historical questions about why these are there you know certain doctrines and those sorts of things uh, and leave the thing in pieces mm-hmm. and then and then walk away from it right um that's that's kind of the modern approach now i know systematics systematic theology has has suffered from that in, mm-hmm. in, in particularly in the UK. I know mm-hmm. English speaking, mm-hmm. English language systematic theology has, has, was problem orientated and things like that. Mm-hmm. How, 
it strikes me the writers of the confession had a different approach mm-hmm. to knowledge and mm-hmm. to, to, to theological knowledge. Mm-hmm. How, what, what are the differences? How, how, do, how do we do theological education in a, like IRBS mm-hmm. in a way that doesn't just say, I just swallow everything I've, said, I've been told, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But also doesn't become the skeptical institution and approaches knowledge in the way that the, the, the writers of the confession approach. Yeah, knowledge. yeah. Um, can we use some cool contemporary words? I hope so. Like, I, I, li- the, I like to think of myself. Dialogue and conversation. Well, I think oh. we're all on a journey, Jim. <laughs> yeah, I think, journey, I think yeah, we're yeah. on a journey. And but, but here, the journey that we're on and we're dialoguing and having conversation with mm. is 20 centuries of Christians. Yeah. Okay. Part of the problem that I see is, uh, you know, it, I know it's cool these days even to quote C.S. Lewis's thing about chronological snobbery. <laughs> okay. But it's true. We live in a day and age that thinks that um, no one before us has known the truth like we do. We've discovered it. We've uncovered it. We've got 20 centuries. We're standing on the shoulders of giants, blah, blah, blah. And so we we have everything that we need. Well, there's a, there's a kind of hubris to that, isn't there, mm. that says, I'm better than C.H. Uh, Spurgeon, than Augustine, than John Bunyan, you know, whoever is, is we can name, right? We're better than they are. No, actually, I think that we need to recognize that uh, the scriptures teach us that there is a body of truth and that body of truth is standardized. It's settled. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, because it's God's body of truth, it's been settled in eternity. It, it's not something that changes, evolves, develops, uh, progresses throughout the history of, of the church. You've got the Roman Catholic view that that truth is uncovered by the church that, mm. that led John Henry Newman to his views of, of you know, the progression of doctrine and led him back to Rome. You've got J. Edwin Orr's view of the progress of dogma, which seems to indicate that there are sort of epochs in the history of the church in which certain dog, dogmas, doctrines are clarified as we go through. We need to reject all of that and say, no, there is one body of truth and that body of truth has been settled and it has been, con- been confessed by Christians for 20 centuries. And so when we come to teach, to proclaim, to confess the faith, we confess the faith that others have confessed before them, and we just join in with them. Mm. Uh, they're, they're, they've been marching along the, the, the journey path for uh, centuries. They've been on a journey. Yeah, and so we can join the band. Yes. And we're not leading it. We're in the middle or maybe even at the back because they're teaching us by our dialogue and conversation with them on the journey as we go. So we have to, I, I, you know, I I know men who just don't want to talk about historical theology, who don't want to talk about the past, who are happy with themselves and their study of the Bible and their conclusions. And that's enough. That's dangerous Mm -hmm. because that's what all the cults do. Can I ask a question then? Do you, do you think there is a reason why, why those who aren't wanting to talk about the past like that, is there something in that that we've done that, in a sense, you could say we need to repent of, as it were? We need to have has have we been guilty of something that's presented talking about historical theology? Um, is there something that we've done to cause people to respond that way and to not want to look at it? Well, yeah, our culture is about um, individual personality, individuation, and so we we live in a culture that focuses on the individual self identity, self promotion. Uh, I suppose that's the the dark side of it. Actually, it's all dark side. But that has been imbibed 
by theologians. Um, it's me, it's my Bible, it's my study, it's my conclusions. I'm going to do this. Um, that's what you need to do. You know, you need to study the Bible and come to some conclusions. And I hope that they'll be the same conclusions as me, but maybe they won't be. That's okay because you've studied the Bible. Well, now it's, it's, you know, God and me and my Bible and the conclusions I draw, not what the Holy Spirit has done in helping the church, Christians before us, come to conclusions, to wrestle with the same scriptures, to think through the important issues and to show us what we are, we ought to believe. And, and it's interesting. I, I'm just seeing all these different links flying a, around in the air in relation to the discussion we had about training and uh, the the Christian ministry you could you could view it this way there is an objectively good or an, an objective model of uh, the good pastor when you mm-hmm. look at the scriptures from this perspective mm-hmm. because ultimately you see Christianity framed around the church it's the, mm-hmm. the body of Christ and Christ has given not to individuals but he's given to the church his ordinances, as mm-hmm. our confession says, you know, we have the ordinances of the Lord's Supper of baptism. And then you have when the church gather uh, these means of grace, these mm-hmm. means that God has mm-hmm. ordained. And so there's a very objective element to the pastor is it is truly bringing people mm-hmm. uh, the things that God has for them mm-hmm. as the church instead of here we have. Uh, a load of places where we need activist pastors to enter and, and bring the gospel. Mm-hmm. And so we'll model training around that. No, it's mm-hmm. not that. It's here the scriptures tell us what Christ has given to his church, and we're going to train men so that they can mm-hmm. take that up and give people the thing that Christ has for them. And that's Very completely objective. countercultural because you, you use the key word there, something that's objective. Our culture is totally subjective. That, that that's the word that I should have used when I'm talking about individualism. It's about subjectivism and it comes back to emotion and feeling. What, what do I feel like right now? What will move my emotions? Um, and even in churches, um, the big churches these days are the ones who have been able to tap into that kind of emotionalism that draws people in. And when they leave, they want a sense of fulfillment. They want a sense of happiness where, you know, if you're, if you're preaching through the book of Psalms, there are more Psalms of lament than there are of joy. Mm. People don't want that these days. But if, if, if we're being objective, that's what we give them. Likewise, I think we have to object to the notion that there isn't a, a final truth. Mm. You know, that's another reality that we struggle with. Uh, yeah, a reality that there is no truth. That's kind of co- contradictory, isn't it? <laughs> but... You know, that our people are hearing that too, because everything changes all the time. Mm. Um, opinions that come to us from professionals, uh, and I'm thinking of, for example, evolutionary theory and evolutionary science, which is constantly being revised. Well, mm. evolution is true, even though they can't agree with each other, and they're constantly <laughs> making changes as to what it is, yeah. right? Yeah. And so we're we're... we're What's forced into our minds is this kind of hermeneutic of suspicion. Mm. Uh, let, let's just suspect everything, and I have to come to my own conclusions, and I'll be happy and live with my own conclusions. Where what we're doing as ministers is we're saying, no, God has given to us 
a, a standard, an objective, and we need to submit to it, not to mm-hmm. what we think. But that's that doesn't appeal to our culture, so we're we're acting counterculturally. In a sense, it, it's it is counterculture, isn't it? But isn't it interesting that, at least in some areas of 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 Western culture, you are seeing a, a, almost a, an increasing appetite for something objective, almost as if the subjective has exhausted them. They've tried it and they're still trying it and they'll keep on trying it and it's tiring them out and they're looking. And so in one of our previous, uh, our taster episode on Jordan Peterson, we talked about this. Why, how do you explain the rise of men like uh, Jordan Peterson and these men who seem to bring something a bit more objective than what the culture and progressives are bringing and what the churches are bringing and what the churches are bringing so many young Christians find him amazing. Yeah. It's because you're right. Is that, is that it is so countercultural to be objective, but those objective truths that, that we want to, to bring to bear are, uh, yeah, it's absolutely essential. We have the right ones, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's essential that we say that they're eternal truths. They're not objective truths for the 21st century. They're, they're just as much objective truths for the 4th century when the Nicene Creed was developed. So we're back at that. We have to live with the history of the church and recognize that when Jesus promised that the Spirit would come and lead the church into all truth, it's not the new discovery of truth. It's rather a better understanding of the truth revealed in Scripture. We just got kicked out. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was fun. There was yeah. loads of fun stuff that came out of that. That was, that was fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for, for joining us, Dr. Renahan. I, I recognize there was discussion about IRBS there, but we just used those four letters and didn't explain what they were. Mm-hmm. What, what is IRBS? You're somewhat involved. I Yes, somewhat for 25 years or so. Yeah. Um, International Reformed Baptist Seminary located in Mansfield, Texas, with affiliate agreements with IRBS UK, IRBS NZ, IRBS Australia, and some others as well. And that is, you are the, the principal? President. President. We, we do principals in the UK. Yes, you do. Yeah. If we were in the UK, I guess I'd be principal. Mm. But pre- president sounds far more serious and... Sometimes. I like headmaster. Headmaster? Headmaster. Uh, no, that we, we're not Hogwarts. <laughs> <laughs> you only try as hard as you can, but you can only get so Yeah, we try to be scary. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you to all of those who have tuned into this coffee house session. I hope that there's been uh, lots of things to get your teeth into there. Uh, this really is meant to be a, a platform uh, to provoke thought in, in your minds, not just to spoon feed you answers. We we haven't got that many of them anyway. As we've discussed, there is only one Wait, wait a minute, hold on. <laughs> hold on. We have answers in that we have the truth. Amen. Yeah. Let's not turn into postmodernists yeah. here, John. Johnny was joking. See, now now I need to ask for, for forgiveness. This has been a sanctifying process. <laughs> it has been. No, thanks to all all of those who have listened. And bye for now. Bye-bye. Bye.